Welcome to Season 4 of Revenge the Drive-In. We're starting off the season with Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers from 1989, and Dario Argento's Inferno from 1980. I'm your host, Patrick, and I am here joined by... Jim, hello everybody. Happy Season 4. Hello, Patrick. What a way to start the fourth version of the same movie I've seen a bunch of times already in Halloween (laughs) 5. And a movie that kind of seems to lose track of its own plot near the end. There's a plot? <laughs> yeah, well, in- Inferno is a whole nother bag of cats, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, a wet bag of cats. But before we get into that, we've got to talk about Halloween 5. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> a reminder for for the, the listener is that Jim has not been on most of our Halloween episodes. In fact, this is your first Michael Myers episode because you've only done the Halloween 3 one, right? Uh, yes, yeah, that's that's correct. I trust you you had seen Halloween 4, so you're up to date? Yes. Okay, yeah, well, let's dig into how they ignore a lot of the stuff that goes on <laughs> at the end of Halloween 4, but they kind of don't, but they kind of do. The only thing that carries over into this movie is Donald Pleasant's craziness. He's not this crazy in the fourth one. This is the most crazy he gets in this series. You know, I, I'm. It's obviously I'm not a big fan of this film, but it's not to say there aren't things that I like about it. Like Donald Pleasance, boom. This is it's not his best performance in the series. He's like legitimately good in the first one, mm-hmm. but he's just given free reign to do whatever crazy shit he wants in this movie, and that's one of the highlights of the movie. Maybe the biggest highlight, I would say. Sheriff, they want you down at the cemetery. Today in the cemetery, somebody dug up a coffin. It was a coffin of a nine-year-old girl. You've come back to us, Michael. So, the movie begins. We get uh, some pumpkin carving opening credits. Is this the 10th anniversary of, of Halloween? Isn't this 10 years on from the first no, movie? No, that was Halloween 4. Oh, oops, never mind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this movie's so unspecial. It's the 11th anniversary, oh. <laughs> oh, no. We, of course, in the grand tradition of lazy slasher sequels, we get a recap of the climax of the pre- previous film. Think Friday the 13th, the first couple sequels did that. So we see Michael Myers on top of a truck fighting with, um, what's her name, Rachel? Oh. No, no, we don't see the rednecks in this part. (laughs) You're right, we don't. He rips a redneck's, like, throat out in the actual, in Halloween (laughs) 4, which is pretty amazing. (laughs) It's Rachel and Jamie. Jamie, of course, is Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter, you know, allegedly. Mm -hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis died at some point, even though she'll be back. several times throughout the series (laughs) but she's dead so jamie is living with her foster family including her foster sister rachel rachel slams on the brakes michael myers ends up is he in where is he is like it looks like a cemetery kind of he's he's like in front of like a like a salt mine isn't he and that's when he gets but yeah so uh, you know the cops shoot him up he falls down a mine we see and then we finally see stuff we didn't see in the previous film because they throw sticks of dynamite out and then we also see michael crawling his way to the river (laughs) which he 
looks like. Like he looks like somebody who's taken a whitewater rafting course. And he kind of floats down this river leisurely on his back. Yeah, yeah. there's a very casual, a casual nature to it. Casual Myers. And then he ends up at some hermit's house. I don't know. This this aspect of the story would have made more sense if this took place in the 1920s or something. Well, but yeah, listen, I guess there's some guy just living in the middle of nowhere. But the best part about this hermit is that he has a parrot, like a tropical parrot, as a pet. I thought the best part is that he looks like John Carradine. <laughs> a mix of mix with a little bit of Ed Gein. He kind of looks like Ed Gein also, which is a little yeah. Weird. He's got that hat right, and he, and he's kind of like that same age, you know. So Michael shows up at the hermit's place, and he's, like, about to kill him, but then he just collapses. And we are led to believe that he has just been lying down on the ground, basically, in an, in a coma, not medicated for, like, a year. Or that the hermit has maybe nursed him back to health? I, I yeah, who knows. But, yeah, and then this is where the story truly picks up. And by story, of course, I mean, we're going through the motions, doing the same thing. Although a little bit of... Give this movie a minor bit of credit in that they throw they throw a little spice into the story. I mean, not much. It's it's like bell pepper levels of spice <laughs> by having uh, Jamie with this like weird psychic thing. But yeah, so Jamie, played by Danielle Harris, the heroine of the last film, mm-hmm. until she stabbed her foster mother with scissors. I certainly felt watching halloween 4 i felt felt like they were trying to make it seem like she killed her but here now we get a little bit of i don't know if you could call it retconning but i think they're realizing that oh wait we need this girl to be likable we can't have a little nine-year-old girl who killed her mother (laughs) so it's like ah she's okay we never see her though which is almost like she might as well have killed her because we never see the we never see the foster parents in this film they were barely a part of the last movie too i think yeah and and i think the only time they're really brought up is when at the very beginning when they're like when that nurse is like you want me to call your mom as she's having like a bit of a freak out in the bed rachel also tells tells her like mom and dad sends lot send lots of love or something there's a few little like mentions of them being like out of town mom's recuperating from her stab wound in switzerland you know halloween there's some traumatic memories there obviously we always we know halloween would be a traumatic date for jamie lee curtis's character you know in halloween h2o and she's like on edge on october 31st and everything but you know how would you feel if you were stabbed by your eight-year-old foster daughter i mean i think you'd probably have some (laughs) nightmares about that date too it's like it's not michael myers but we still see this kind of so yeah the parents are just out of town and don't ask questions i love it (laughs) but yeah so anyways we we meet jamie waking up in the middle of the night she's got nightmares she's at some kind of clinic there's another boy there who has a crush on her and can't act but i'm not going to be too harsh on him because he's like a seven-year-old kid yeah what's his name billy i think it's something like that but yeah, he kind of sucks. I, that's the only other kid there who talks, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all like in the background, but uh, he's the only one, other one that's a character, I guess. But but yeah, so Jamie continues to have these nightmares, and she's mute now. So this has changed the, as the result of the trauma that she went through. I guess this really, you know, this the elephant in the room with Halloween 5 is the ending to Halloween 4. Like, how do you make a sequel to that? <laughs> And ironically, the elephant in the room for Halloween 6 is the end of Halloween 5, because how do you make a sequel to this movie? 
Yeah, so let's talk about this, I guess. We're making this movie. We want Jamie to be likable. We want her to be... I, the original intention, I'm assuming, with Halloween 4 was that she would kind of go on to be another Michael Myers, and whether or not we actually see that in a movie. You know, yeah. you don't necessarily need a Halloween sequel with Jamie killing people, but the, but the implication that that happens. And then, you know, maybe Halloween 5, we just get away from these characters and we start anew. You know, the Halloween series, exactly, no stranger to reboots, so we could have done that. Halloween 4 could have ended the series. That would have been kind of a perfect ending. You're wrapping it up. Uh, it, no, don't I, say perfect. Well, don't, I mean, well you're right. Don't, not perfect, you, don't but, you dare but, say perfect. Listen, but the ending is a new beginning, right? And it's yeah. just, you're just stuck in this cycle, which is kind of neat, you know? Instead, we're stuck in another cycle, or cycle of just Halloween movie after Halloween movie. Yeah, doing the exact same thing over and over again mm-hmm. with Terminator Mike Myers. Who's, who's got some fresh ink this time around? Fred, does he? Yeah, he's got the the thorn tattoo on his wrist. Um, that is a new addition. Um, I didn't that even know is this. elaborated. There's like a close up of it. What the hell? Was you it? I thought it was movie? like I did watch this movie. Yeah. yeah, like a week ago. And there's another character who has the same tattoo or something. So yeah, this, they're clearly doing that. And that's so we'll talk about this obviously with the thorn, with the man in black. Johnny this Cash. This was written. Oh. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly, Johnny Cash. This was written into the movie to be like a setup for Halloween Six, but. I've read also that all the stuff was included and they didn't actually know what it meant yet. And they so they really just said, like, Halloween 6, you guys figure it out. That might have something to do with why we waited another six years for Halloween 6. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, oh, what's, what's there to say about Halloween 5? I guess, I guess we have to say something. Well, you know what? For Halloween 5, all I can say is that it feels like even more of a departure somehow than Halloween 3, in my eyes. Because this movie, Whoa. it just feels so rehashed that you're like, is this a fucking joke? You know? And then you have this little actress who's actually pretty good in Halloween Yeah, Danielle 4. Harris continues to be really good in this role. Yeah, but um, she's mute she for three quarters of the movie. Here, yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it's just it's just kind of like a joke. Listen, we, we can't discuss this movie being a joke without mentioning the cops. Those oh my two god! Bumbling cops. That's... Did you catch the music that they that they when yeah, you that first they walked meet them? out to? And it was like, bam, yeah, bam, what bam, the bam, hell bam, is that? Bam, bam. Yeah, I... <laughs> is this Pee Wee's Playhouse? What is this? <laughs> you know. And then like every character is just kind of cookie cutter character, you know? Where oh, my friend is missing. Uh, that's okay. I'm just gonna hang out with my other friends. Oh, oh yeah. No one gives a shit. <laughs> shit about anyone in this movie that's actually amazing well there's even there's even like a bit that you know we'll get to eventually but a character that we meet is killed like directly outside of a convenience store and he's supposed to be meeting or driving his friends to a party his friends and girlfriends and this character is murdered and nobody gives a shit they somehow make it to the party without him. to be fair we met that character would you give a shit if that was your friend and he got yeah i'd be happy he's gone that guy's that guy's an asshole yeah, it's almost like the characters only exist just to give, like, the false, you know, <laughs> just to put up this facade of actually having a story. I actually think that this movie does something kind of interesting with one of its characters, and it's a character that I kind of hate, but that's eventually why it becomes interesting, and that's the character of Tina, who we'll meet in just a bit here, mm-hmm. if we're going to continue with the plot, I suppose. So, yeah, I guess we must. Jamie, she's freaking out. She's having, like, a seizure. The... 
doctors are going to operate on her, do something. And then Dr. Loomis interrupts them. And there's that, they're like, oh, would you want her to die or something? And he's like, ah, she'll stabilize. And then she does, but how did he know that? <laughs> so, uh, so you had to, Donald, Donald, Donald Loomis, Donald Pleasance, his first scene, he almost kills a kid. Um, he almost kills a, he kills a kid later in, on in the film in an even better scene, but. <laughs> so the next day, Jamie is visited by Rachel, her foster sister, and Rachel's friend Tina, who is one of the most annoying people I've seen in in a film. I mean, and here's where I think it's interesting because I think she's like annoying and loud and silly. And in any other movie, we are introduced to this character and it's like, oh, they'll be the first to die, right? Or, or maybe not the first to die, but they'll they'll they're die they'll die. They're yeah, they're yeah. cannon fodder. They're knife fodder. She actually becomes a hero. She still dies, but she becomes, like, heroic, and that's not something you usually do with this character, which is why I think it's really interesting. It doesn't completely work for me because I still hate the character. Oh, God, yeah, <laughs> but she, at least she's, they... she's terrible. But it's also interesting yeah. that, you know, out of all the characters that we're introduced to, the first one, Rachel, she's the one who seems intelligent and, like, level-headed and kind of normal. The rest are all fucking idiots. They're all goofy and stupid and... Well, here's the thing, just though. ridiculous in every way. And, and this, is, this is the problem you have to any teen slasher movie where you carry over one character all their friends were killed you got to create them new you got to make them new friends right you know and it's like okay maybe maybe these guys <laughs> there's a reason these people weren't around in halloween before she didn't like them that much but now half the yeah. town has been killed and she has to be friends with yeah. these people yeah i don't have the smart friend i don't have the nerdy friend anymore i don't have the you know it's a bit confusing but I think Rachel is in college now. Y- y- yeah, maybe. Because I'm assuming Tina's like probably like a roommate or like a college friend of some sort. Maybe she's not. It's just uh, the house that she goes to is clearly not the same house from Halloween 4, but maybe that's just a movie thing. You know, the house wasn't available. They couldn't shoot at it. Mm-hmm. The homemakers burned it down after they saw Halloween 4 and just <laughs> yeah. outraged it at it but um yeah it, it's obviously a different house but it felt a little it looked a little like it, it reminded me of like of university housing in in the city that I live in yeah yeah that's that's kind of what I thought too I mean it was, it was it was too nice the lawn is too well kept like that that's the thing about the university housing the lawns always look like shit because college students don't care about that stuff <laughs> yeah so Tina, as we said, is annoying. She also brings the dog. The dog is, what is the name, Max? Yeah, Max. A Doberman, I believe. Doberman Pinscher. Mm-hmm. So Rachel is planning on going out of town. Is she going out of town to visit her parents or just do something else? I'm not really sure. I thought... Because the parents are out of town. Uh, Yeah, I'm confused. I didn't know that Rachel was going out of town. I thought she was waiting for her friends to show up from out of town to go to this party. Or something. No, she is going to something else. I think there's, the, I think they mention a cabin. I think Donald Loomis mentions a cabin. But, <laughs> Donald but, Loomis. <laughs> but, yeah, I, oh, I did it again. Shoot. <laughs> Donald That's Pleasant a great name, though. <laughs> At any rate, what a dick move by Rachel to be like, oh, yeah, you know, my sister, she needs me. <laughs> it's a year removed from the most traumatic events of her life. I'm just going to go out of town. She can, you know. Yeah, that hey, creepy that creepy Dr. Loomis can take care of her. I trust him with my 
nine-year-old sister. Yeah, and then she's like, hey, I'm going to be out of town, but hey, Tina, do you want to check in on Jamie for me? That would be great. Thanks. And and T- Tina's into it. Tina wants to actually check on her, but then Tina's boyfriend is being a dick about that. But yeah, so everyone's just an asshole. Like, Tina's annoying, but you at least get the sense that she's, you know, maybe a decent person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, her taste in men is apparently shit, but... Yes, and that's, that's oh, I, we're going to talk about that when we meet. This This is a bold move, by the way, to, for a, uh, a movie, a sequel in a series that has a consistent killer identified by a name. Yeah. To also introduce <laughs> a character with that same name. That's just like a weird move, and it's not like... It is, but it, I guess it, I mean, I, I, yeah, I guess they had the story written, right? And they were like, oh, well, wouldn't No, they be- didn't. <laughs> Not until they were shooting, I don't think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, they were probably like, wouldn't it be great if this guy's name was Michael, too? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, work. it leads to a mildly fun scene where yeah. she's calling him Michael, but she thinks it's the other Michael, you know. Yeah, it's fun for us, not for her. So Rachel is having second thoughts of going out of town. She might want to stay back and take care of Jamie. And that is kind of on her mind as she returns home. She takes a shower. Max is perpetually barking at something. And then um, <laughs> over at the clinic, Jamie has a has a little episode, a freak out. So she, well, I guess earlier, because she has visions of Michael. There's like a telepathic link of some sort. Which is never really explained, which is fine. But she saw Michael wake up and kill the hermit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now she is worried that Max is in trouble. And of course, Max, since returning to the home, has just done nothing but barked. Also, this is confusing because whose dog is Max? Tina brings Max to the clinic. You'd assume it's Tina's dog. Oh, apparently it's it's Rachel's dog, though, which makes it also Jamie's dog, maybe. Yeah, it's, I, it's or, weird. or maybe her parents' dog. Or maybe not, because maybe she's in college and she just has Doberman. I don't know. <laughs> Again, just having the parents not be around here is, is, is leads to more questions than answers, I think. <laughs> so Dr. Loomis frantically calls up Rachel, who gets out of the shower, answers the phone, and they, they have her check on Max. She realizes that Max is gone. And so they think, obviously, something is going on, and so they tell her to go to the nearest store and just stay there until the police arrive, which she doesn't do. She goes to her neighbors. Yeah, which whatever. is a pretty which is a pretty uh, weird thing to say. Go to the nearest store and hang out. Why don't we just send the police to your house immediately? Well, they're on their way, but, you know, it might take a minute or two. Yeah, I don't know. This is why, why a store, but yeah, I don't know. And do they know she's not fully closed? Did she say she was in the shower? I don't know. No, I I don't remember. But also, isn't it funny that Haddonfield, if police are trying to get across the small, sleepy town of Haddonfield, it feels like they're trying to drive across all of New York. But if Michael Myers is getting across Haddonfield, it's the smallest country town you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, and that's just just how it is with with slasher movies, I'm I'm afraid. There is an inconsistent geography, (laughs) and that's fine. But no, you're, you're definitely right. Anyways... So the cops arrive. These are the bumbling, goofy cops. All clear. Nothing above, nothing below. Who, I think I heard the, the director. Who Who is the director, by the way? It's like some guy, some Swiss guy. Oh, that um, explains it. Does it? <laughs> I feel like the Swiss are usually smart. Uh, Dominique Othenin-Girard. 
who was nominated for a Golden Bear Award, which is the like the best picture at the Berlin International Film Festival. What? Not for this movie, believe oh, okay. it or not. <laughs> um, no, no. I, yeah. <laughs> I think I had heard, whether it was him or the writers, who I guess he is one of the writers credited, I think there was something about they wanted to make these cops like the um, Last House on the Left cops. They wanted to do like a thing like that, which, you know, Last House on the Left, the uh, Wes Craven, Sean S. Cunningham movie is a really weird movie. Jim, I don't know if you've ever seen it. No, but I haven't. It's like three quarters, maybe two thirds, incredibly disturbing horror movie about a bunch of psychopaths that rapes and kills a couple people and then the parents find out about it and then it's like a revenge thing. All that stuff's like incredibly disturbing, really, really well done. It's Wes Craven's first movie, I believe. So that's like two-thirds or three-quarters of it and then the rest is bumbling cops just kind of going about their day, just being absolutely useless (laughs) and never quite intersecting with the story but it always feels like maybe they will. I think they do at the very, very end. So that movie, it's not a great movie. It's a decent movie. But if you take away the cops, that's a great movie. But the cops are there, so it's like it's an okay movie because the cops are that bad. (laughs) And I don't know if that was a case of Wes Craven was trying to make like a dark comedy that maybe didn't quite fully work, or if it was more of a concession like, I am making the most disturbing movie ever, we kind of need to just have comic relief in there. Either way, it's I think it's a misguided notion to include those cops here. So so why are we borrowing the worst thing ever from a pretty good horror movie to be in this movie, Is the, I guess is the question, in, in Halloween 5. Just the way they're introduced. It's almost like a Monty Python bit or something. Or no, not even They Monty like complete Python each other's sentences almost. Yeah. They're introduced with like this goofy kind of clown music, and you hear like honks and like funk. Yeah, they <laughs> slide whistles, and it's just like, what the fuck? Is yeah, this? I know. I for so I have so the last time I saw this movie was years ago. This might be, I think I saw the first five. I can't Halloween. wait till I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I saw the first five Halloween movies whenever, and then I missed a few, and then I've kind of seen the rest or bits and pieces of the rest. I had forgotten about these characters, and when they came on screen, I actually had to rewind. And I was like, wait a minute. Was I imagining that music? (laughs) I know. Yeah. They're not a huge part of the story. They're not just in this one scene, though. They're bigger than that, but... I, I have so many questions, well, and, and mainly, the, mainly why. And they never have that kind of like little musical number introduce them again for the rest of the movie. Well, I guess I guess that's for the best. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they find uh, Max just, he comes on back home. So Max has just been, he just ran off for a bit. So the house is clear. There's no one in the house. So Rachel goes back in. But then, of course, she is killed by Michael Myers. So Rachel was... Kind of our final, she and Danielle Harris were kind of both final girls in Halloween 4. And then we kill her off early in this movie, which is not an uncommon thing. Think of Friday the 13th Part 2. We kill off the final girl from the first one in the opening scene of that movie. But like, I think the intention is like, oh, this is going to be shocking. This is, we we like this character. She's, if, if we kill her, that means anything can happen. Anyone can die. But it's like, if you'd never seen a horror movie, maybe, or, or a sequel, I should say, to a horror movie, it's like, yeah, this might shock you. Yeah. But like, aren't you kind of expecting this the yeah, entire if this, time? If this is the first horror movie you've seen, then yes, it would be shocking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Loomis goes to 
the sheriff. We get we get a returning sheriff from Halloween Four, um, who's got a dead daughter, and <laughs> he's like, "Okay, Michael Myers is coming back." And the guy's like, ah, "No, he's not." And he's like, "There's a good and bad to this scene because this scene gives Loomis his probably best." dialogue since the original film because he says something like i prayed to god that he would be sent to hell but i knew in my heart that hell would not take him and so something is like "Ooh, that is awesome that is classic dr loomis but then he also says something like he's like i my memory goes back 12 years and it's like which i think is supposed to be like 12 years ago in the first halloween even though you know it's the 11 years whatever they this movie came out sooner than they thought it yeah would, i, guess. I yeah. don't know <laughs> But that also contradicts everything because my, his, Loomis's entire thing is that when he first met the kid when he was like six years old, he knew right away he was evil. Yes, he wasn't yeah. just evil the time he broke out and killed people. <laughs> he was always evil. So it's like that. that's kind of uh, that's a little inconsistent with the character. But yeah, so then uh, the sheriff gets called into the cemetery because Michael Myers apparently has dug up the grave of a nine year old kid. At this point, we don't know it's a nine-year-old kid, but later on, Loomis tells Jamie that there's a nine-year-old. But there's a scene with, uh, at some point with Jamie where she thinks Michael is entering her clinic, and so she runs into the basement and, like, hides, but then she gets found by, like, a orderly and or or, well a maintenance guy and like an orderly and they're like, hey, it's time for the the Halloween costume pageant. Someone got her a uh, princess costume, which... Well, I guess, you know, it's wise not to do the clown because that's what she almost killed her mother in. So they're getting her a nice little princess costume. We also catch back up with Tina, who Tina goes over to Rachel's house to meet up with Rachel. But Rachel's already gone. So she figures like, okay, she has gone out of town. She wasn't sure if maybe she would stay in town with Jamie. But then she tells her friend, uh, is her friend Sam, the hot blonde Uh, chick? Yeah, Sam. Yeah, she tells Sam, like, oh, it looks like we've got the house all to ourselves. Yeah, so she, so she and Sam, Tina and Sam, meet up with their boyfriends, uh, Michael, mentioned, <laughs> who's who's the big asshole greaser guy. He's in trouble with the cops a lot. You get that the sense of that. He's got a real nice car. He hates when people touch it. And then Sam's boyfriend, both these women have awful taste in men. Yeah. Uh, Tina, yeah. Because, Tina because he's an asshole. Sam because... He, he looks like he's like 45 years old he's got like very unfortunate hair I like he's got he's got like Niles crane hair and a dollop of creme fraiche excuse me Frazier no no Niles I'm telling Vicky my recipe for crepe gâteau oh well I'm sure she's had enough of your crepe by now yeah and and, and do you and do you remember his name Spitz <laughs> yeah Spitz dude I don't remember it coming up until the scene in the barn but yeah, yeah his name is Spitz let's, let's hope that's a last name or a nickname <laughs> uh, named after the Olympic swimmer <laughs> I don't really see these four people hanging out together. Like Sam is way too hot for Spitz. And then I hate to say it, but especially because, you know, there are any number of reasons for this to happen. There are abusive boyfriends, things like that. And it can be sometimes it can be difficult to leave those people for a variety of reasons. But Tina dating this guy, Michael, just makes her look so like irredeemably dumb. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, so there, there's going to be a party at the Tower Farm. They're going to pick up some cases of beer from the drugstore that Spitz works at. And after Michael picks up 
the beer, he gets killed by Michael, the other Michael, in the alley. Which is kind of a fun scene, how he just, like, we've established he really cares about his car, and then Michael just comes up with, like, a garden claw or whatever and just scratches the paint. Yeah. And then I like how Michael's, or Mike, we'll call him Mike, is so dumb that he, like, gets out of the car and is like, that's it, asshole. And he, like, goes up to him, and then there's, like, a shot from, like, Michael Myers' shoulder, <laughs> yeah, and it's revealed like that this guy's... Feet yeah, exactly. <laughs> that this, this Mike guy's, like, a foot shorter than him, and he's like, oh, I'm gonna take this guy. <laughs> and, like, obviously it doesn't go well. I love this scene so much, first off, because, like, we see him back his car up behind the store, and then it immediately yeah. becomes nighttime. And no, then, it's not It's not night when he's killed. It's still daytime. No, it's nighttime when he's killed. I don't think you're right. Oh, I think I'm right. Go back and watch. But anyways, look, look, our list, listen, it's our first disagreement of the season, but let's both agree to disagree. But my favorite part about this scene, other than the let's kill, Let's have a second disagreement of the season. I don't agree to disagree. I think you're wrong. <laughs> well, you're wrong, but that's okay. So, I love when he's like acting all tough and he's about to hit michael myers with like a bat or something and michael myers just like full-on stops him with his hand to his throat you know it's like yeah and then eventually it's it's the garden claw to the forehead which is great yeah it's definitely i just pulled up a a picture on google of the of the claw to the forehead it's it seems to be day listen we'll talk about this after the podcast okay (laughs) but yeah anyways you know it is october and in in the the northern united states it can can get dark quick not as quick as you think it does but <laughs> so what's tina dressed as i don't i don't think i have that in my notes what, what's uh, her Halloween tina's costume? tina's like a um she like a pirate no it's the boy that's a pirate she's she's she has like a masquerade mask and like a vampire cloak she's just supposed to be random ghoul i guess okay random so, sexy uh, ghoul which I guess Mike had a uh, like a Rondo Hatton mask or something that Michael Myers eventually puts on, I guess, to amuse himself. <laughs> I, I don't know why yeah. he puts that on, but he does. And it's kind of the best. But so Tina gets picked up by Mike or who she thinks is Mike, but it's actually Michael Myers. And of course, we have established since the first one that Michael Myers knows how to drive a car. So that should be the last of your complaints about this scene. But he picks her up. He's not talking, obviously, because he's Michael Myers. And she thinks he's given her the silent treatment. because oh, what did I do wrong this time? And then she's like, hey, let's go stop and see Jamie before we go to the party. And no response. And then she's like, hey, let's go over to this drugstore or this gas station. I need to buy cigarettes. And then she's like, come on, I need to buy a pack of cigarettes. So he, so he slams on the brakes. She gets out. And then meanwhile... Over at this costume pageant, Jamie has another vision, and she kind of has, like, one of those seizures. She collapses. Loomis and some adults, as well as that one boy, are huddled around her trying to help her. I love how the boy is, like, it's, like, actively, like, part of this. They don't say, hey, fuck off, kid. We yeah, well, let the adults first, handle this. At first, I thought she was going to fall over the railing, and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> yeah, uh, that would have been, like, Halloween ends. <laughs> The opening scene of Halloween ends a little bit, but and this this is the first real time that Jamie's talk all movie. She's able to say a few words, and and they're able to figure out that Tina's in trouble, and she says store, and then they're like, what store? What do they sell there? And then and then <laughs> because the store itself has a big like it's it's almost like one of those like big like wall advertisements you'd see in like the fifties and, yeah, and yeah. earlier, but it's on the gas station. It's it's like what 
it's like a big woman with cookie tits, basically, <laughs> right? And I don't know, it's some cookie company, and I don't know what it, what it's called, but she's just like, big woman. And then Dr. <laughs> was like, oh, big woman, what? Does the big woman work at the store? What do they sell there? <laughs> this scene is so funny to me, especially because when they find out she says cookie woman mm-hmm. and then Dr. Loomis's delivery of the line cookie woman like had me in tears. I don't know what it is, but he's just like cookie woman. It's just very amusing to me. And then the cops that are there, I guess, are able to figure out what gas station they're referring to. So the cops go pick up Tina. Michael Myers drives away and then they bring Tina to the clinic to visit Jamie. Jamie says Tina's name in this very emotional scene. And then Tina's like, oh, this is great. This is so wonderful. You can say my name now. Now I'm just going to go to the party and get and get laid, kid. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice knowing you. And this is this is so frustrating. This scene is, so again, going back to Tina is so annoying, but also like, why? Like, this poor little girl is in distress and her sister is apparently out of town. I, I mean, in reality, she's dead. Do you really have to go to this Halloween party? I mean, come on. No, no. The answer is no. <laughs> Loomis tells her, be sensible, Tina. And then she, like, laughs and says, I'm never sensible if I can help it. Which has always struck me as, like, an Oscar Wilde line. I don't know why that is, but I always remember that line. <laughs> yeah, well, first off, it's a good line. But it's also like, oh, okay, so you're going out to a Halloween party in this town where for, like, the last ten odd years a serial killer has killed multiple people in this Yeah, she even has the line earlier in the film. She says this to Sam. She says they should ban Halloween in this town, which, spoilers, they do in Halloween 6, or between now and Halloween 6, I suppose. (laughs) So frustrating. She's all set to go to the tower farm. She ends up getting a ride by the two bumbling cops who Loomis tells to follow her. And then the little boy... So Billy overhears where she's going, and and at this point, Tina has escaped from the clinic, and she's going to look for Jamie, but she doesn't know where she is, but Billy does. So at the farm, immediately, well, first of all, first of all, oh, oh my God, this is frustrating. Okay. You're having a Halloween party at a farm. How are you not outside with, like, a bonfire or something? How are you just in the house? Yeah, there is somebody's, some random person's house. That is so lame. That is so stupid. That is such a, that's why you just have it at any house. Just have it at a house. If you're not going to use the farm, which I guess they go skinny dipping later, but what the fuck? It's like 35 degrees outside. I know. Well, also, (laughs) also, there's no like pumpkins or anything. Like nothing looks how everybody's in costumes. Yeah, they're in the costumes. That's kind of it. Yeah. Pretty much immediately when Tina gets this party they decide to pull a prank on these bumbling cops and she and sam run out of the house screaming being chased by a guy in a michael myers costume it turns out to just be spitz and the the cops pull the guns on him and everything and then when they realize it's just a prank they're like oh you know you guys could easily be dead by now but fortunately for you we're lousy cops or something like oh yeah, boy but um Yes, like. <laughs> there's, there, should, there should be a rim shot, and that's it. It's no more goofy than the music that played when they first arrived. I know. Well, they've also got like those kind of like goofy, like, I mean, this might just be me, but it sounds like they have those goofy kind of like uh, like New York cop voices. Oh, you're lucky we're, we're bad cops. Uh, you know, and you're like, like almost Did like Rodney a Rodney Dangerfield, Dangerfield play one yeah. of the cops. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember them sounding like that. I, I tell you, my wife kinda... and I, we only smoke after sex. 
I've been working on the same pack for three years. My wife goes through three packs a day. I got no respect. <laughs> day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Again, going back to, is Tina remotely likable? She's dating a complete asshole. And the first opportunity she has, she plays this life or death prank on the cops. That could have gotten Spitz killed, which would be for the best of everybody. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, how, like, how can you like Tina at this point? I think out of the three, those three characters that are left, Tina's definitely my favorite. I thought Sam was, but then I realized, oh, she's just an idiot, too. She's just hot. That's that's yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, all yeah. she has going yeah. for her. And Spitz, I mean... <laughs> Well, when he was first introduced, when he was first introduced, he was... Spitz looks like he belongs on a watch list. He's, he's got, like, a pedophile look about him. I don't yeah. know. Dude, if he just had a pair of, like, aviator sun or uh, eyeglasses, he'd look like fucking, um, what's his name? Dahmer? <laughs> Dahmer. A little bit, yeah, maybe. So they all go into the barn. They find cats, little kittens. I don't know what the fuck they're doing. I mean, I know it's a, it's a farm. There could be cats here, but... Oh, well, don't worry. They're just barn cats. Yeah, they're 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 kittens. They're like tiny. These are like brand new cats. You could throw them a very long <laughs> brand, way if you wanted to, brand which I do. Cats. They, it's, that's what kittens are. <laughs> they're brand new cats. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So they all get distracted. They go in this barn. There's some more lame Michael Myers prank stuff with Spitz, which. Literally, we had just seen it like 90 seconds ago. Why are you doing this again? Because he like pretends to stab Sam with like a pitchfork or something. It's like, we just did this scene. Why are we doing this again? They do it like four times in this. Yeah, it's just too much. Well, there's a few false scares, I think, with like a cat falling on someone. And uh, we get better cat scares in our next film. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm actually not sure we do, but they're more enjoyable cat sequences, yeah. I'll say. Uh, but yeah, so eventually Tina takes off because Sam and Spitz are about to have sex. And we're about to find out if he spits or swallows. But Ba-dum. before we can find that out, he gets stabbed with a pitchfork. They do the Friday the 13th Part 2 thing, except they don't. he doesn't stab them both at the same time. And Sam gets up, runs around a bit. She's kind of like, she's like covered in blood. She looks like Carrie. Yeah. And then she gets a, uh, what do you call that? A scythe? Hasicle? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> scythe, yeah. <laughs> uh, she gets that swiped across her, and then we just get like a little tiny splash of blood on the on the hay, which is really lame. It's yeah, like, this oh, movie has we so if, if you're going to like cut away from a kill and show blood like hit the ground or the wall or whatever, give us a decent amount of blood at least. Because this, I'm, I'm, by and large, I'm not, I'm not complaining too much about like the kills, the effects in the movie, but like this one specifically feels like they cheaped out, or maybe, maybe it's censorship, the MPAA, you, who knows? But yeah, yeah, you just wanted more from this scene because I don't think the pitchfork through spits is bad. That's pretty good. No, and in that scene, he does in fact. Spit. I mean, it's no the Prowler. The Prowler is the all-time best <laughs> pitchfork. <laughs> Kill really is, because yeah. that's like incredible like they might have actually killed that actress in that, <laughs> in that scene at this point everyone at the party has decided to go out skinny dipping which again october 31st rural illinois you can go as far <laughs> south as illinois goes it's not warm enough to go skinny dipping i don't know <laughs> there's, there's there's ice on the river <laughs> We never even see the body of water that it is. Is it like a disgusting pond? Is it a lake? Is it a river? 
I don't know, but if it's not a hot tub, you're not doing it. (laughs) But Tina's like, oh, you know, I can't go skinny dipping, you know, I need to, or I at least need to let Spitz and Sam know where I am. And so she goes back into the barn, finds them dead, and then runs to go get the cops, but they are dead as well. And so she gets chased by Michael Myers, who is in a car, chasing her. (laughs) Driving about he's, six he's miles an hour. <laughs> and then this is right when uh, when Jamie and Billy arrive at the farm. And then Michael starts kind of chasing after them. And they kind of split up. And he, well, he almost runs over Billy. They do like a cutaway where like in like a low budget movie, that kind of cutaway could have maybe been there to indicate that, yes, he was run over. But we're not actually going to show a dummy. That's not the case here i guess yeah but it's also funny because then the next time we see billy tina's like cradling him she's like it's okay billy you're okay but he definitely looks dead you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) he's fine (laughs) yeah so so the car chases jamie through like is that little like a little christmas tree farm area that's what it looks like (laughs) like all these like small christmas trees yeah that's what it (laughs) looks that is what it looked like yeah visually this seems like decent but it is like frustrating like michael what are you doing just (laughs) Just run her over. What, yeah. what are you doing? Well, you know, <laughs> what, just get out of the we... car and run up to her because you're at like a. Well, he doesn't run. Man. We he doesn't run. We get that. But does he have to drive slow? Does he have to drive at walking speed? <laughs> I don't understand this. But we I, but we get the best stunt in the movie here. I think where he fucking <laughs> rams his car into a tree and the whole car explodes. <laughs> and this is actually really neat. How you know when the car crashes, like there's. The the um, horn is just going off, presumably because Michael's head or chest is resting mm-hmm. on the steering wheel. And uh, Tina is making sure Billy is okay and Jamie and everyone, everyone seems to be okay. They're like terrified and they're injured, but they're otherwise okay. And then the horn stops. That's actually really neat. I like what I like how they do that. It is, yeah. Like and it's then, it, it's a great little detail, and uh, it it's <laughs> yeah. It's one of the better moments of the movie. I think it like raises because you know you're watching this movie. You don't actually think Michael Myers is dead, but just the realization for them that oh no, he's moving. Well, and also too, I mean, this is the first time in the movie that he's felt scary. You know, where he, when he climbs out of a burning car, and you're like, wow, dude, this guy's awesome. <laughs> he's terrifying. Every other time, yeah. he's been like hiding in a closet. <laughs> you know like just stuff like that <laughs> who does he think he is barry manilow <laughs> <laughs> yeah or he's just been like walking around he hasn't been doing anything this is the first time where he does something really cool michael goes to kill the little kids but then tina gets in the way and and then she gets killed and so tina this character who i've hated the entire time is like all of a sudden oh my gosh she's like a her- heroic character she still dies but they made the obnoxious friend who you'd think would be like the first or second to die they made her like a hero that's i think that's neat it kind of works it kind of doesn't but yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of character redemption just like boromir in lord of the rings (laughs) she pulls she pulls the boromir of this movie yeah except she never like she never tried to kill jamie (laughs) yeah but yeah boromir almost betrays people it's different it's it's a little different this would be like if jar jar uh. Like saved Obi Wan's life by because he's the annoying one, and, uh, and and then he gets killed like in a self sacrifice, and, and it's like oh that's yeah that, I I think that's the better comparison, but <laughs> anyways, so 
Um, then all of a sudden, Dr. Loomis shows up, and he takes the kids, and the cops show up, and Loomis, doesn't he Doesn't he tell the cops that he killed Michael Myers or something? I can't remember. He says something like no, that. No, no. They, they show up to the house, right? Oh, no. So, oh, sorry. That's, that's, that's before. Yeah. They, when they show up to the field, he's like... Uh, oh yeah, he yells to Michael, who's off in the distance somewhere. He he yells like, "I'll you know, we'll we'll I'll meet you at your at home, and I'll yeah, where it all began. That's where it yeah. will end." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then he goes over to Jamie, and he's like, "Do you believe me now? Will you help me find him?" Yeah, now? there's that because he's been trying to get. He's basically interrogated Jamie throughout the movie. He's like, "We both know he's alive, but you know where he is." And he's like shaking yeah, her and around, she's, and she's a fucking mute, and she's like, mm-hmm. "I know, it's great. <laughs> this is this is wonderful, crazy Donald Pleasant stuff." And uh, yeah, so they have this trap set up at the Michael Myers house, which fortunately still has functioning electricity somehow. Um, despite being condemned for 40 years. Yeah, and also it's a completely Uh, different house, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's probably true. I I don't care too much about that, despite my earlier nitpick about the uh, Rachel's house looking completely (laughs) different, I guess. Maybe I should be consistent. (laughs) So they have this thing set up. A bunch of cops all over the place. Loomis is in the house doing something, and then up in... I think it's supposed to be Michael's sister's bedroom, you know, Judith's bedroom where he first killed. Mm-hmm. We have Jamie sitting at the vanity and then the the other cop who's the guy from uh, Ace Ventura, um, the guy who uh, gets thrown out the window in, uh, I mean, you don't see him get thrown out the window, but he's, Roger Pedactor is his name. I just remember that. Okay. <laughs> Roger, Roger Pedactor is, I mean, that's not the actor, that's the name in Ace Ventura. He's like the guy oh. who... <laughs> hires ace he's he and courtney cox are the two that hire ace ventura <laughs> because he became highly recommended from one martha metz oh yeah the bitch what then they find out how do they find out that the that michael is someplace else what do they they get like a call from somebody yeah well no they're, they're trying to contact the police station from the house and they're not getting through to anybody and they're like you know there's a bunch of guys stationed there how come we can't get a hold of them and they're like maybe something's happened to them and then fucking donald loomis i'm gonna call him that from now on donald loomis goes no that's just gonna continue to throw me off okay to donald maybe Plains. i'll start getting it right now that you get it wrong intentionally <laughs> yeah. so i don't know yeah okay donald loomis goes uh uh <laughs> Michael must be there. I'll stay here with the girl. You go find him. And in reality, this is like kind of, this is like his secret plan. He knew it would happen this way, I guess. Yeah, and I guess it wasn't the police station. It was somewhere else that they had a bunch of guys stationed, right? Oh, at the clinic. Yeah, that um, was it, the clinic. that's it. Yeah, because then then they told the one cop that stayed behind and Mr. Loomis to take Jamie to the... uh... (laughs) (laughs) I love the scene with the guy who's in the car. He's like, he gets rear-ended by Michael. And then he's like on the radio with the guy from Ace Ventura. And they're asking him like, hey, are you okay? And then you hear him like... "Ah, ah, ah." Yeah, like, all this, like struggling, and they're like, "Are you okay? What's wrong?" And it's like, "Can, can like you the, figure it out, buddy?" Well, dude, he starts like, out like he starts out like, "I think he's here." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, "Who's here? Who is it?" It's like, oh. Where could it possibly be on Halloween? Night? Well, I, I don't know if they literally ask who's there, but it, but it's very clearly like a, 
<laughs> I don't know. But anyways, so Michael gets into the house. He has a fight with Dr. Loomis. He eventually throws him like over the balcony. In, in Into like a living room. Yeah, and, and we do see he hits the ground hard, but we do see that he's still alive. But then um, the cop is trying to set up like a pulley system to of ropes to lower to lower them down and out of the house uh and of course he get, ends up getting hanged by that which is pretty awesome because michael just gets in and, and just throws the rope around his neck and just throws him out the window which is awesome and then jamie i guess runs to the attic and this is where well i guess there's a casket here there's no nine-year-old girl or yeah, nine-year-old yeah, kid yeah. i don't think but, oh, but that's I assume right this is the yeah, casket so. from from the cemetery but we also see this is rachel's body's up there mm-hmm. and max is max there too yeah he's hanging from his collar <laughs> okay i actually i don't think i caught that and, and it, it shouldn't it does not come as a surprise because michael kills a dog in more movies than he doesn't <laughs> but i i actually didn't think he killed one in this one okay so jamie goes in the coffin and then when michael's about to like stab her or something she calls him uncle which gets him to momentarily pause and she gets him to like take off his mask for a second she wants to see his eyes so she kind of motions she's like i want to see your face yeah and there's like a tear yeah yeah and he takes his mask off and then immediately freaks out (laughs) yeah and then so the chase ensues all throughout the house uh including the dumbwaiter or what is that is that a laundry shoot laundry shoot right yeah i I think that's what it was and there's like it's like a 20 minute (laughs) portion of this chase of them in this laundry shoot yeah where he's stabbing through the laundry shoot when she's at the bottom she's trying to get back up to the top which and it's funny that was kind of like um what's what i'm looking for that we saw that laundry shoot before loomis locked it yes he did so she eventually gets out of there and loomis is back to the rescue kind of (laughs) <laughs> um, he at first he he dangles her as bait and he's like here michael come get the little girl it's like what the fuck are we doing here? this <laughs> is wonderful so great <laughs> and then when michael comes to attack they drop like a big chain on him it's like a chain net and then loomis starts hitting him with the two by four which is inherently funny when a 75 year old man is wailing on a seven foot tall well well the best part about that is he's shooting man. with like tranquilizers right or oh something. yeah there's a tranquilizer gun and then and then michael just reaches and grabs the gun out of his hands and he rips a two by four off the window and just starts beating yeah. michael and he's like yelling die die <laughs> yep awesome and then there's a really weird shot there's a really weird shot where when michael finally drops the ground then loomis falls too i guess out of like exhaustion but he falls on top of him and it almost looks like they're gonna kiss yeah (laughs) yes absolutely yeah (laughs) and then so michael is finally arrested he's taken into the jail there's a hilarious shot where they reveal that he's in the jail and he still has the Michael Myers mask on. <laughs> so funny. And they're like, he'll, in the sheriff's like, he'll rot in there until the day he dies or something. And this is a really great response from Jamie. She's like, he'll never die. And then 10 seconds later, the man in black shows up. Uh, so the man in black, a little setup. We saw him get off the bus. We had seen mostly like shots from like the knee down. He's got boots. We do see there's that thorn tattoo, which apparently you didn't see. He also kicks a dog or steps on a dog or something like this guy. Whoever he is, he's an asshole. We know that. <laughs> so he shows up, shoots up the police station, and then blows up the 
the cell and i guess he and michael escape yeah, yeah. And, and and Jamie goes back in and just is crying and screaming the word no. And that is how Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers ends, a film in which Michael Myers takes no revenge. <laughs> right? Yeah, correct. I guess he kills Rachel. Is that I guess, in is like that the revenge? first act? Is that his revenge? Because yeah. she hit him with a car once or twice? <laughs> He's gone through worse than that. So anyways, that is the end of Halloween 5. Jim... Your thoughts? Uh, this movie felt like a joke, <laughs> like a like a like a little jokey movie. I don't I don't know. It didn't feel like a Halloween movie. It was just a rehash, as we've already said, of all the other Halloween movies combined. Which makes it feel like a Halloween film because that's what most of them are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I mean, Halloween uh, three, and there, and there are plenty plenty of reasons to not like Halloween three, but. 12, 13 movies into the series, however many movies we are, aren't you so glad it does something different? Like, I'll even say that about Halloween Ends. I didn't really like Halloween Ends that much, but I'm so freaking glad they did something different. I mean, I didn't really care much for it, but it was Mm -hmm. finally something new. Well, you know, it's funny that uh, in this movie, they took a fantastic little actress and made her mute for three quarters of the movie and just made her have seizures. Mute, but emotive still. Yeah, yeah but, I, but I think I think Don. She 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 does more acting in this movie than Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween too. Who's just hopped up on painkillers and just <laughs> wants to sleep, you know. Yeah, but I think Mr. Don wearing Loomis a wig does a does a does a better job just because it's so much fun to watch on screen. Yes, this is this is a wacky, crazy performance overacting. You got to appreciate it. It's great. The 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 the. <laughs> This is my second favorite Doctor Loomis. This is this is you know I he he's great in the first one just like as a character and here he's a terrible character which is why he's amazing. It's great. <laughs> like this is there's always been like a fan theory around that like maybe Michael wasn't actually crazy. He just had the world's worst psychiatrist who basically <laughs> made him crazy. And this film that. lends that credence. It yeah. really does. Yeah, yeah. I think. <laughs> Like if this if this is how if 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 this is how Dr. Loomis was with like a seven year old Michael Myers, like oh I could kinda see it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if he's hauling a seven year old Michael Myers around saying, Take him, take him. Yeah, you know, it's just a shame that this movie is pretty boring. Like there's nothing super exciting that happens. Definitely the best kill, in my opinion, is the gardening clause, the gardening implement in the head there. Yeah, that's good. I I like the um the cop the hanging. cop getting hanged. Yeah. I thought that was something different too. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, and that's kind of neat. I mean, like for me, my favorite part of this movie was when Michael pretends to be Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know. I really like Cookie that. Woman. <laughs> Cookie Woman. That's my yeah. favorite part but, of the like, movie. I love specifically that. the Cookie Woman line delivery. Yeah. <laughs> But like that, that like portion is so tense and also so much fun and uh, it's so stupid too. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is. Yeah. But everything else just is boring. And then all that like the kittens in the barn thing—that's like a ten. Like it feels like a thirty-minute scene, but I'm sure it's like a ten-minute scene. And you're yeah, like, I don't know what? what it is about that barn stuff. It feels like it should work a lot better because that's classic slasher setup. That's what I thought. Yeah. And it just doesn't. I don't know how it just falls flat and i'm not really sure why 
It's almost like they had come up with scenarios or like some death scenarios. So like, okay, yeah, well, we're going to have somebody stabbed in a barn by a pitchfork and somebody else killed by some other kind of farming tool. But now how do we get there? Oh, well, what if somebody finds some kittens next to this party that's happening on a farm or somebody's bungalow and, <laughs> and they or, wander in there? Or you could have the party outside at the farm like any farm party would be and then a couple people just wander into the barn. Exactly. They don't need to find exactly. kittens. Exactly. They don't need to play pranks on cops. No, they don't no. need to play pranks on each other 90 seconds after they played pranks on cops. Yeah, and on top of that, like for the most part, this movie was pretty lax on the gore. And even even the deaths, like we, there are so many. That they were they are, but I don't know how much of that is. You you blame the filmmakers for that because I'll say like the the team working on the effects. It's K K N B. So that's uh, Kurtzman, Robert Kurtzman, Howard Berger, and Greg Nicotero. They're like as skilled as anybody in the gore effects industry. But I would say just in general, you know, it ebbs and flows. But I would say in the late 80s, the MPAA cracked down on gore more than at other periods in time. Because the late 80s, Friday the 13th movies are a lot less violent than the early ones. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which comes out in 1990, Mm. like every bit of gore in that movie is like cut out. And it's just the lamest movie in the world because of that. So yeah, so that could be a factor. I don't know any specifics about if Halloween 5 had issues with that, but it would not surprise me at all. Yeah. My biggest takeaway from this movie is that I don't think I like Michael Myers that much as a... This is what I was saying. As an evil villain. This is the last time we talked about Michael Myers. You yeah, I've really changed my tune. I've really as best tune. villain in our Season 3 Awards recap, best villain for Halloween 4, and I said... <laughs> Michael sucks. There's one movie in which he works, and I stand by that. I think he's he's a boring killer. And listen, as far as like boring killers who just do the same shit every movie go, he is not Jason. There's an artistry to Jason's kills. Michael just does whatever. Yeah, well, and then he drives in a car, and somehow that makes him less threatening when he's chasing after people in a car. Yeah, yeah I like the idea that he's so bad at chasing people in a car that he drives his car into a tree. He's like, ah, fuck, dude. He was drinking. Yeah, yeah. He couldn't see out of that mask. Also, I so there was one thing earlier when he's wearing like the Rondo Hatton mask, which is Mikey's mask. There was a scene where he took it off. And I really, really was hoping that Michael Myers' mask was on underneath it. But oh, it wasn't. yeah, that's He, like, right, pulled yeah. it up from, like, underneath the seat. But I, it would have been so funny if he just had that mask on <laughs> underneath the other mask. <laughs> Missed opportunity. You'll put that stupid, goofy sound effects in with the cops, but you won't do that with Michael Myers? Come on. Yeah. Well, what did you think? What's your opinion? Same thing, Same sort of thing? Pretty much. I mean, it's a lame movie. <laughs> There's a few little mild touches of it. These are all like small things, but there's a few mild touches where it's like, oh, I kind of appreciate that. There's a couple little moments with Rachel where you see Michael in the background in the house Mm -hmm. and they don't do like a musical sting to like let you know that he's there. You just kind of have to be watching the screen and you'll see him. Yeah. There's a few moments like that that are kind of nice and and a bit more reminiscent of the first one than a lot of the sequels. And then most of the other stuff I like is the schlocky elements, like the uh, Donald Pleasant's performance. It's just we've done this so many times at this point. You you need to give us something memorable. 
even if even if it's not a big story shakeup, because the big the thing that they bring here is the telepathic link, which you know whatever. But like I I just I will always compare these to the Friday the Thirteenth movies, but a lot of the weaker Friday the Thirteenth movies they'll at least give you memorable moments if it's just like a kill that really stands out or like a gore effect or something or even if it's just something dumber if it's Crispin Glover dancing yeah you know yeah. something just weird. I think, um, and this movie just doesn't really have a lot to offer there other than the crazy Donald Pleasant's performance, which is wonderful. I think as this podcast goes on, I'm, I'm learning that I'm agreeing with you wholeheartedly about what you just said about the worst Friday the 13th being kind of better than the... <laughs> definitely better than a lot of Halloween movies. I just think they're more entertaining. Yeah, yeah, they are. I don't I don't know what it is. It's yeah, it's, it's a certain amount of it comes down to personal preference obviously. Yeah, but like, you know, when you're watching like a horror movie, you don't want to be checking your phone while you're watching a movie. And like I'm watching this for a podcast and I'm like looking down at my phone, I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what else is going on in the world of Facebook, you know? Oh, or X, <laughs> formerly Twitter. <laughs> Which you're not on, and you're still checking that over watching the movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's not good. It's not completely un... It's not unwatchable. It's, it's not even the, the worst of the series. I think I think you'd agree it's the worst up to this point. Mm-hmm. This is not the worst in the series, but that's not to say it's really all that worth watching, honestly. Like, I, 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 I have this thing where... I've talked about this. I've written about this for Grandma Sophia's Cookies blog, but certain series you can get the full experience of the series like all that's great that that series has to offer by watching one movie in the series or maybe two the halloween series you can honestly just watch the first one the the rest the other sequels do not add anything to it except for halloween 3 which is its own unique thing and it's not really a sequel but halloween 2 doesn't add anything it adds more than this it comes closer to adding something than halloween 5 does but yeah you know yeah i agree Let's get into Inferno. Let's get incinerated. Inferno was released in 1980. I guess it's the second? No, the third Dario Argento movie we've covered on this podcast. Though I believe this Te- is... Technically fourth. Oh. Because he has a writing credit on Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh. Like a story credit or something. But yes, the third work as a director. Is this the first episode of an Argento movie that I've been in? Other than Once Upon a Time in the West? Technically? Yeah. Well, I gotta tell you, this movie is technically a sequel to Suspiria. And I'll explain that in a second, because it really is technically a sequel. It is, but it's in an interesting way where a Suspiria exists as its own thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just about perfect as it. I think Suspiria is one of the five, ten greatest horror movies ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inferno is what makes it a, what makes it the part of a bigger story. And I think that's kind of interesting where I don't think Inferno really functions without Suspiria, but Suspiria functions fine without Inferno. So I don't know. And, and they're kind of similar movies in ways. They have a similar visual. Yeah, well, I, I saw, I, I didn't really know who Dario Argento was until 2018 when the remake of Suspiria The Suspiria came remake, out. yeah. Yeah, so I saw that in theaters. And then when I was like, oh, this is, this is a remake. And then I went home and I watched the original. I was like, oh, this is a fantastic movie. I didn't know that there were two other movies that were related to this movie. One being Inferno and then the other one being, oh shit, what is it? I just, Mother of Tears, which is relatively recent. Like I had, Yeah. Oh, and, and it's funny. Okay, so if it's 2007, that must have come out before I actually saw Suspiria. But I think the, um, I think everyone kind of talks about Argento the same way. They just stopped talking about his movies. 
yes. after about the mid nineties, um, because he just lost it. And I think some of it is how he uses effects and stuff. I mean, this happens to a lot of directors. You know, when's the last time anyone gave a shit about a Francis Ford Coppola movie? He still makes movies. It's just no one sees them and they're not any good. You know, in that kind of... It's like the yeah. Scorseses and the Spielbergs are like the exceptions to the rule. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a shame because I think Argento has such an interesting style. And I think... Uh, yeah. If, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it... Um, didn't he get Mario Bava to help with some of the optical effects and stuff? Uh, he died in 1980, so it's if if he worked on Inferno, it's probably Mario Bava's last work. Yeah, I just googled it. It said uh, Argento invited his mentor Mario Bava to provide some of the optical effects, matte paintings, and trick shots for the film. Okay, so there is involvement. Yeah, so so this movie, going back to it being a quote unquote sequel, Suspiria was such a box office hit for Argento that <laughs> they immediately began to write a second movie. They were like, oh, Suspiria was just one <laughs> movie in a trilogy called the, was it the Mother's Trilogy or the, the Sister's three, the, Trilogy? Yeah, the Three Mothers. I mean, it, it, I guess you'd call it the Mother's Trilogy because the third movie is called the Three Mothers. No, the third movie is called Mother of Tears, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so the Three Mothers, the Mother's Trilogy, whatever. Yeah. And I've still never seen the third one, by the way. I, I, I joked about how everyone stops paying attention to Argento films at a certain point. I'm one of those people. I haven't. I think the last Argento movie that I saw came out in 96. It's the Stendhal sy- syndrome, and it's it's okay. Huh. I think this movie kind of being born out of desperation, it kind of shows a bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because when you move to this from Suspiria, you, you really go, oh, <laughs> this is interesting and kind of boring and not, not nearly as exciting as Suspiria for it being set in the same universe and part of the same quote-unquote trilogy that spanned from, like, what, 1977 to 2007? Yeah. I don't know. Inferno is listed as a Section 2 video nasty, a non-prosecuted film, which means it originally passed with cuts for the cinema. It was released in 1993 with 20 seconds cut. Uh, So this is in the same section of movies as The Evil Dead. Or the toolbox murders, which is terrible. Oh, the Beyond is is a is is in this section as well. The Beyond, probably the best Lucio Fulci movie. Contamination, one of the greatest alien ripoffs of all time. God, I've seen too many of these. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> don't go in the house. Don't go near the park. And don't look in the basement. Are all section two non-prosecuted video nasties. <laughs> Also, you're an English man who also took Latin. I'm reading here all three films are partially derived from... Oh, I'm not going to... Thomas De Quincey. Yeah. Suspiria de Profundis. Which I, I know little to nothing about that. I, I As far as I know, Argento took the title of the Mater Suspiriorum, Mater Lacrimarum, Mater... What's the other one? Uh, good question. Which one did you they say? All Sus- say Suspiriorum. Suspiriorum Lacrimarum. Oh, te- Tenebrarum, of course. Yeah. I think he took, I think those, those names are like mentioned in that book. And I think that's where it goes. I think it's mostly an Argento creation, but I can't confirm that. I can confirm that it's incredibly frustrating as someone who studied classical Latin to hear them pronounce the word mater, mother, as mater. Like it's a fucking Cars character voiced by, uh... Larry the Cable Guy, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> modern slash ecclesiastical Latin, sure, that's probably how it's said. 
<laughs> Mater Lacimera. Lacrimera. Mater Suspiriorum. Mater Dun! <laughs> well, actually getting into this movie, I want to say one more thing. This movie joins the ranks of some of our other movies that we've covered on this podcast of filming the death of an animal on screen. And I don't know... I believe you, but I need to be reminded... I, well, there's a shit ton of animals in this movie. It, <laughs> mostly cats. Killed. If there's a movie that's going to make you terrified of cats, it's this movie. What what animal actually gets killed? It's a mouse. And there's footage of... So oh, at, after fine. Mark goes down into like the crawl space area, a cat jumps in before him. And then it keeps cutting between this cat and Mark. And the, and the cat is literally eating this live mouse. Oh, yeah. The because, cat eats him. Yeah, but yeah. that's fine because they didn't... It's it's They killed... It's It's... it's it's not the filmmakers actively killing. Well, unless the unless animal. they it's gave not, the it's cat not like the Friday mouse. the Thirteenth. Well, it's possible they did that, but it's possible the cat would have found them anyways. You know, uh, you just sped things up. But it's different than all those cannibal movies where they're just like actively the actors are out there like stabbing turtles and <laughs> cutting up snakes and stuff like that. Like Italian movies were notorious for that. Um, there's also in in Deep Red. I don't remember if. I really got into this with Josh, but there's a scene where the little girl drops like a lizard that's been stabbed by like a knitting needle or something, and it might be real. And if it is, that oh, lizard is dead. Right. But I, I, I don't, I don't know. That also might not have been real. But you know, you know, like to think of Argento. He's not, he's not, not. You know, all these Italian horror movies are super violent, but he's not an exploitation director the way Fulci or Umberto Lenzi, or all these other guys are, Ruggiero Deodato, R.I.P., he just passed away recently, he's the director of the incredibly repulsive um, (laughs) (laughs) Cannibal Holocaust, of course, Um, you know, you'd like to think he's not out there killing animals, but maybe he is. Oh yeah, in in his free time, yeah. Okay, well to get into this kind of boring movie, unless you have anything to say, uh, anything else to say before we... Get into the plot I have a lot here. to say, but let's get into the plot. Well, it'll come up. There's The plot's complicated, or is it? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I do not know what price I shall have to pay for breaking what we alchemists call Silentium. The life experiences of our colleagues should warn us not to upset laymen by imposing our knowledge upon them. So... Right off the bat, we're introduced to Rose Elliott in New York. She is reading from this book called The Three Mothers, and it describes these three witches, Mitre Suspiriorum, who's in Freiburg, Mitre Lacrimarum. There's one, how do you pronounce her name again? Is it Ten- Tenebrarum? Tenebrarum and um, Lacrimarum, yeah. which it's the, so the, sus- Mater Suspiriorum, there's, um, uh, Suspirior, uh, Suspiriorum is the mother of darkness, correct? Uh, let me double check um, here, because they keep on changing their names throughout the movie. Lacrimarum is, is mother of tears. Yeah, Suspiriorum is, is lady of te- Excuse me, Tenebrarum is mother of darkness. Yeah. Um, and then Suspiriorum is size, okay. Argento also has a film called Tenebrae, or that's the Latin title. The Italian title is Tenebrae, it, but it comes from the Latin word for, I guess, darkness. Oh. And and that's one of his better movies, actually. It's not doesn't tie into this trilogy, but it's awesome. And that's probably the next movie he made after this. John Saxon's in it. It's one of the best Jalo movies ever made, okay. I think. Well, I Although it's it a terrible mystery. It's it's two different mysteries in one, and both are terrible. But it's an awesome horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, back to this movie, this mystery begins when Rose gets the part in this book where this alchemist who originally wrote this book named Varelli. Dr. Varelli, yeah. He describes how he built these three houses for these three sisters. And I think he actually says they all rule the world from their respective houses or something. And he gives clues that you can search out to see if you're living in one of these three houses. I think one of the clues is there's, what do you say, there's like a picture of the house on the wall somewhere. There's a picture of the sister who runs that house in the cellar. And then for the third clue, you have to look at the soles of your shoes. Yeah, it's like the key is under your feet or something. So Rose suspects that she's living in the New York Sisters building because Varelli included an image, luckily for her, he included an image of the building he made in his book, and it matches the building pictured hanging in her apartment. Alchemists, you know, I don't know much about alchemy, but were they frequently designing no <laughs> modern apartment buildings no. no were there alchemists in the early 1900s no i don't think so yeah that seems more like a like a like a medieval died off in the 16th century kind of thing yeah i don't know alchemists died off when they realized that they couldn't make things into gold that's what happened to alchemy that was why alchemy existed because they thought they could make things into gold so rose goes oh my god i think i'm living in one of these buildings I have, <laughs> I have proof here in this book and on my wall. So she runs downstairs. She writes a letter to her brother first, who's in Rome, and his name's Mark. And she details what she's learned about the three mothers in this book. And she runs downstairs, mails the letter, and then she pops in to this little antique store called Kazarian Antiques to question this old man, Mr. Kazarian, about the book that he sold her. She's like, is it real? He goes, oh, it's as real as you want it to be. <laughs> Piece of shit. Thanks for the answer. Well, what does he know? He just sells the book. Well, yeah, I guess so. But he seems a little off, you know? Well, he looks like a guy in old age makeup a little bit. Maybe that's part (laughs) of it. Who hates cats. Well, and I'm I'm with him there. He's the most (laughs) sympathetic character of the film. So Rose goes, well, I'm going to go into the basement. She just hops on in. She's exploring. I don't know how, but she (laughs) comes into this, like, basement cellar room, and there's a hole in the floor. And it looks just like a puddle. And she drops her keys into this puddle. And when she reaches in to retrieve her keys, you actually realize that her keys are hanging on the chandelier of a totally submerged room. Yeah, it's like a ballroom or something. This yeah. looks like like a, like the Titanic, like a, just a completely submerged thing. This is so cool. This oh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really cool see. set. And she hops in and is swimming around this room she gets her keys back and i don't even know how to describe it other than a sunken ballroom but we as the audience see that there is a painting of mater tenet what's her name again (laughs) i can't pronounce it tenebrarum tenebrarum on the wall unfortunately for rose she doesn't notice because a dead body (laughs) floats into the room and frees it See, I thought it was several, but I think it's just one, and it just keeps on cutting back and forth, but you might be I don't right. think so. It's changing direction an awful lot for it to just be one. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's this a, is a supernatural it's a, film. Though. Yeah, it's a spooky magic body. So she shoots out of the hole, and she just runs. She leaves her shoes, she leaves her lighter, and she just runs back into her apartment building. Well, Rose gets into the lobby. She's absolutely soaking wet. She's waiting for her elevator to come down so she can run back upstairs. But she hears the voice of a woman saying she's been snooping around and then Rose kind of hides in like a side corridor. And then we immediately cut and we're introduced to Rose's brother Mark in Rome where he's attending university for like musicology. 
and everyone's wearing headphones and are listening to a piece of classical music. I don't remember which one. This was wildly confusing to me for like one moment because the guy is writing on the chalkboard, the professor, and he's writing finale. And I'm like, oh, this is their final exam. But no, they're <laughs> listening to the finale of this piece of music. But it seemed like, why are they like, what's going on? Like someone and then, and then his friend is like late to the exam and then, but it's not an exam. So never mind. Yeah, well, the, but all kinds of weird things do happen. We're like, Mark, he's, he begins to read his sister's letter because he has it with him. And he's listening to this composer's piece. And everybody in the class is wearing headphones and listening to music. And Mark just can't seem to get past like the first two sentences of this letter because there's this drop-dead gorgeous woman with a fluffy cat. Uh, Anya Pironi is, is the actress. She played the uh, babysitter slash governess or whatever in House by the Cemetery. Uh, she was like evil oh. and cleaning up after the monster there, but then she ended up getting killed by the monster too. So, oh, uh, I didn't even notice. Absolutely gorgeous woman, like the most striking eyes you'll ever see. Yeah, it's like and... a Siberian husky. The way those eyes just pierce. <laughs> she looks like a Siberian husky, or an Australian shepherd. That they have like really striking eyes. <laughs> well, I would just compare her to an absolutely gorgeous woman with striking eyes. Alexandra Daddario. Then I don't know. But she's staring directly at Mark, and she's mouthing something. And we as the audience can't hear it, and Mark can't hear it. And he keeps on looking down to his letter, then back at her, and down to his letter, and back at her. And he just never reads this letter. And then spooky things are happening. Mark is feeling kind of weird. And then this uh, this window flies open, and the room is very windy. And then the piece ends, and everybody takes their headphones off, and this woman rushes out. And Mark rushes out to try to catch her. And he leaves And do his... you know who this who this woman is? I, character. I assumed she was supposed to be the the witchy lady of, of Rome, but I don't know. Yeah, she's Mater Lacrimarum, which which I guess she is the main villain of the Mother of Tears, which I've still never seen, but I doubt I doubt it's the same actress. They probably get a young woman by well, that it's time also, because it, that was made like thirty years later. It's also funny that they said that the that the New York sister was supposed to be the youngest, but this woman looks way younger. Yeah, this one's supposed to be the mo- the most beautiful though. Oh, okay. She's got like an eternal beauty, maybe, that, you know, who cares about that? But yeah, because the uh, New York one is the most cruel. Yeah. And then what's the German one? What is she? What's what's her deal? I don't know, the most sinister? What's she the, what's she the most of? <laughs> oh, she's the wisest. Oh, well, couldn't be that wise. She died, dude. But <laughs> speaking of unwise things, I guess. Sarah, who is Mark's friend, she shows up late to this class, and she picks up Mark's letter when he runs away. We catch up with her after class in a cab. I guess she's going home. She opens this letter, and she just starts reading it. And she gets pretty, like, distressed. And she immediately asks the cabbie, she goes, hey, take me to the library. So he drops her off at a library, and then there's a weird bit where she stabs her finger on the cabbie's handle. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that's supposed to signify or mean, but that happens. So she goes into this library, and it's a little weird. You're getting some weird vibes from some of these patrons kicking around. And she does find the a, a copy of The Three Mothers. And as soon as she starts reading it, the library is, is closing. So she's like, ah, I guess I'll sneak this book out of here. And somehow, I don't remember how, but she gets, like, turned around and lost and winds up, like, in the basement of this library where she opens a door and there's just, like, dozens of boiling cauldrons. And a mm-hmm. man wearing black gloves doing something. And she says, oh, sorry, I've got turned around. I'm just trying to get out of the library. Can you show me the way? He goes, yeah, it's the other door. 
but he sees her holding the book in like a in the reflection of a mirror and he just immediately starts to attack her the book he also at one point takes off the glove and you see it's like a creepy old hand yeah 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 like a monstrous hand yes but after uh sarah throws the book away she just skedaddles out of the library and she heads home and she she's she's really scared and uh, she gets into the elevator in her building and she meets a guy named carlo and she says hey can you come to my apartment because something's happened and i'm just really scared i don't want to be alone right now and carlo being a nice guy he's like yeah of course i've got nothing to do for a couple hours i'll come and hang out so they're in the apartment, and Sarah's kind of slightly more relaxed, and she calls up Mark and says, hey, did you read your sister's letter? And he says, no, no, I didn't. I, uh, I got sidetracked. And she goes, well, it's pretty crazy. Come over. I'll tell you all about it. Almost as soon as she hangs up the phone, the electricity in her apartment keeps on flickering on and off, which is actually really neat because she's like listening to a record. When the lights are on, the record player is going, and as soon as it switches off, it's just dead silence and darkness, which I really liked this scene a lot. Carlo, you know, trying to be a man, he's like, ah, I think it's the the circuit breaker or whatever. I think it's the (laughs) whatever the hell it is. Where is it? And uh, Sarah's like, it's at the end of the hall. But I'm going to come with you because I don't want to be alone. Carlo heads into the um, breaker room and he's fiddling around and he's yelling back, oh, I think I've got it. I think I'm fixing it now. I think we're going to be a-okay. When Sarah comes into the room, Carlo pops out around the corner, but he's got a fucking knife through his neck and it's the coolest thing on the planet. Yeah, it comes out the other side too, right? Yeah, and he's like it's like a full. Yeah, and he's like thing. spitting blood all over the place, and he falls on top of Sarah, and he's just like spurting blood everywhere, all over. <laughs> I don't know why, but the scene was really funny. He's like holding on to her, like he's trying to attack her, but he's not obviously, and she's trying to get away. But then the killer, who we don't see, we just see he has black gloved hands, which we saw earlier. We've also seen in every Italian movie ever. Too, so <laughs> it'd be the same character. It could be. The- <laughs> Could be the killer from Don't Torture a Duckling. Could be the killer from Ugh. Bird with the Crystal Plumage. These are great names. Your, your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. Could be the killer from that. <laughs> they all have weird names. They all have super long names and they're big on animals. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sarah, much like an animal, was stuck like a fucking pig, dude. The killer rips the knife out of Carlo's neck and then just stabs her in the back and kills her. Which I don't think you usually stick a pig in the back, so I don't I'm no. gonna dispute your analogy there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But go ahead and do it. I'll allow it. Like Jesus and Judas, you know, just, just stabbed in the back. <laughs> he Judas her. And, oh, wait, no, he Jesus her? You know, to reference the title Inferno, could this, this whole thing could very well make you end up in the ninth circle of <laughs> Inferno. <laughs> Perhaps even... Judeca, the the main section of the Ninth Circle where Satan is chewing infinitely, you're eternally on Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. Cassius Clay? <laughs> no, and also also Satan, people never get this, but Satan in Dante's Inferno is fuzzy. He is like fluffy and poofy. He's adorable, quite frankly. I mean, he's terrifying, <laughs> but he is fuzzy, so that's nice. People haven't kept up with that since 1320 you don't typically see a fuzzy satan no. I, th- I think it's time for a fuzzy satan comeback well you know before we get too far off this subject i just want to say have you heard of the sounds of hell i think i think that's what it's called in hieronymus bosch's garden of earthly delights trip oh yeah okay 
Yet uh, the, the hell panel has some musical notes painted onto somebody's bum. <laughs> and this, okay, this sure. demon is playing like a flute off of this sheet music that's, that's carved on somebody's bum. And uh, they have recreated the music and they played in a loop and they call it the Sounds of Hell or something. So if you just Google Sounds of Hell Hieronymus Bosch, it'll come up. And it's a pretty neat tune, if I'm honest. Is it as awesome as the song in this movie? No. Well, there's some good songs, but I, I don't know if I well, liked this as much as... No, the, the, the one song, I, I don't think... I mean, I think you were about to say it's not as good as the music to Suspiria, which it's not. Well, I was going to say anything, anything done by that band. What were they called? Goblin? Yeah, well, this, yeah, this isn't it? Goblin, which is yeah. no, noteworthy, but this is Keith Emerson of Emerson Lake and Palmer fame. Mm-hmm. Prog rock musician, which Goblin also kind of a prog rock band, so we're still kind of doing this much, much more piano. Although there's some synth throughout the score, but the song that they do that comes up later in the movie is like the most amazing piece of music I've ever heard. Like the one with actual singing, like a full oh, like yes. choir yeah, and stuff, yeah, I like is that amazing. One. The score itself not that memorable, but the song. No, oh well, even I, I remember uh, the score for. What was it? Deep Red was done by Yeah, Goblin, Deep Red right? is a fantastic story. Yeah, that's... I don't think that's listed as Goblin. I think... I mean, it was Goblin, but maybe it was before Goblin was fully formed or something. But I think that lists the score as being done by Claudio Simonetti, who was like the leader of Goblin. But I think that maybe oh. that was before Goblin was formed. I'm going to look that up quick. But I have, of course, seen Goblin, along with Claudio Simonetti perform in person they did a live in milwaukee last uh, around halloween oh, they did a right. live yeah. showing of the movie suspiria in addition to the band goblin performing the music and it was awesome oh, you um duck. claudio claudio simonetti would be the only like everyone else in the band was like kind of young so he was the only one who was like there back in the day but their goblin split at, at one point or another this is true every band goes through this you know there's multiple like Grateful Dead type bands touring. There was Phil Lashley, Dead and Company, and then there's the whatever. So there were like two Goblin bands out there performing. Claudio Simonetti's Goblin is the one I saw. And they are, for lack of a better term, the official one. I, I'm sure that would be disputed by somebody. but I bet they're fucking awesome. Yeah, they're great. Okay, never mind. It's it's not, uh, it's, it's mu- Deep Red music by Giorgio Gaslini and Goblin. Oh. Huh. But yeah, this this is music by like Keith Emerson and like some other guy, I think. But there's like some actual like like Keith Emerson wrote it, and then the other guy. Maybe maybe it's different in Italian movies where they credit the um, conductor of the orchestra in addition to the composer, whereas we usually would just com- credit the composer mm-hmm. in American movies. Well, the last thing that Mark sees of his friend is. <laughs> I, rather confusedly, her falling through like a like a like a linen wall in her apartment, her body falling through a linen wall when he walks in when he's looking for her. I don't know what that's about. I don't know why the hallway was blocked by sheets, but it yeah. made for a neat kind of entrance. <laughs> Afterwards, Mark, <laughs> Mark calls Sarah and he's like, "Hey, I, I didn't have time to read your letter, but they're not really able to communicate because the phone line is is." cutting in and out on them and he just kind of hears or sorry rose he just kind of hears rose say um come to new york i'll explain everything when you get here they both hang up the phone but instead of following mark well, she, she never really hangs up the phone you're right she just think. kind of drops. <laughs> technically <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because instead of following mark we now go and follow rose as she's trying to hide from a killer 
This is a point in the movie that I realized that I really love the architecture of the sets, the architecture of the movie, if you will. The production design? Well, but it's even more We have actual words for this. No, but but it's more than that, because, like, you're using this kind of, like, almost, like, gothic... I guess it is production design. Anyways. Well, well, and also let me ask you, because we see some beautiful exteriors of the apartment building in New York, which is a striking building. Is that all a matte painting or is that an actual building? Because part, the of, it, building part of it is in, set. Okay, but the building in Suspiria is an actual building that is like a historical building. Erasmus once lived there, but it looks like it it looks like it would be a matte painting because it's just like so fantastical looking. This one kind of reminded me of that, so I'm not surprised to learn some of it isn't, you know. Yeah, it, I, it looks like it could be a model in some of those shots or a matte painting something like that. It is I I think I think every time that we see like a full view of the building, it is partial model, partial matte painting. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and then when it's close up, like people entering it and exiting the building, I think it's a set like uh that's probably like 20 odd feet high or something like that sure this scene there's lots of kind of like it it, it is like this gothic kind of architecture and you have lots of stained glass and just kind of like jagged angles but then you have that mixed with very unique colors like this kind of scarlety red and this really dark but vibrant green and just all the sets make you feel kind of uncomfortable (laughs) well and 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 the coloring too some of it is like the actual like paint of the thing but more of it is just the lighting like the the certain sections of a room will be lit green or will be lit red what have you especially like the inside of the antique store Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's no real rhyme or reason to it it's just to look neat and to look kind of creepy maybe you know yeah, well, it's actually funny because it, this, like, as I was thinking about, you know, how the sets really add to the feel of the movie, you know, like, this feels a lot scarier and creepier than that dilapidated barn in Halloween 5, for instance, you know? Low bar, but sure. As I was, <laughs> yeah, as I was thinking that, Rose is literally attacked by the architecture as she's attacked by the set itself. <laughs> she's running from this killer. She cuts her hand open on a, on a, on a door handle and she's bleeding all over the place. She eventually runs upstairs where there's a broken window and there's just, it's just pouring outside and all this water is just flowing into this broken window and, and all over the floor. There's this big hefty puddle she walks past a like a window frame or like a window pane and it just flies open and breaks in her face <laughs> and then uh she's attacked from behind by some creepy ghoulish looking hands and she's pulled backwards onto some onto some nails on the edge of a windowsill and a broken window is then used like a guillotine i like how it's not one clean cut to they do it like three times i think yeah they do and there's a great shot where you think it's just going to be blood but it it cuts and you can actually see like the the pane of glass in her neck mm-hmm. and uh yeah it just looks really great that that's a great kill <laughs> very shortly very shortly after this mark arrives in new york and this this scene kind of annoyed me oh because- i just want to say i i like when he's like meeting the people in this apartment building I love, there's something kind of just fun about, you know, these Italian movies, everybody's dubbed, so everybody's speaking English, <laughs> but in, everyone talks the same way, no one has an accent, I just think that's so funny, there's something just kind of 
fun. It's like, it doesn't matter. The geography of this, it doesn't matter like who's in what country. Everyone can talk to everybody and there's never like a (laughs) linguistic uh, barrier or anything. I just think that's kind of fun. But this scene annoys me in this movie because, you know, we're like, I think we're about 48 minutes or about an hour in and we're meeting like six new characters that we haven't met yet. And we have about 45 minutes left of the movie. We're halfway through the movie before we really truly find our main character. Mm -hmm. I think that's a problem. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I like, like, you know, it could be Rose, it could be the friend, whoever, you know, it almost seems like she's going to be the main character for a bit. There's even a moment where you kind of feel like, oh, is Daria Nicolodi going to be the main character? I don't know. Yeah, and that's what's annoying about this, too, because we meet this cast of characters. So we have, like, this concierge, I think, as she's described as, and I think her name's Carol. So I guess she runs the place, or she works for the place. She was, like, the head of the dance academy in Suspiria, that actress. Okay, we also have a nurse and her ward, who's an elderly man named Professor Arnold. And we also meet this woman, Countess Elise something or other. Yeah, and that's Daria Nicolodi, who, um, I don't know if they were married yet, but that's eventually at least Dario Argento's wife. She was in Deep Red. I think that's maybe the first time they worked together. She wasn't in Suspiria, but she did uh, co-write the screenplay with him. For she that. is a gorgeous woman, too, by the way. I think Josh said the same thing, and I just, I don't see it. I don't think she's ugly. I'm just like, <laughs> okay, well, I don't okay. know. I, 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 Listen, I, we're having too many wanna, disagreements for our first episode of the Sand, Patrick. I don't want to put her down or anything. I just, and she's like, eh, she's whatever. We meet her when she comes by Rose's room or apartment, and she's looking for Rose. And you can kind of hear her voice all over the apartment. And Mark eventually opens the, the door and says, was that you? And she's like, oh, it was, uh, there's pipes, <laughs> there's pipes and holes in these apartments and you can talk to each other. And we whispered to each other and that's how we discovered it. Anyways, where's your sister? She's been missing. Mm-hmm. And Mark is like, oh, well, you know, I expected her to be here and she's not. So I guess her being missing makes sense. Mark first hears about the three mothers when the countess says, Oh, she was freaking out about these three mothers and she believes that, you know, that these witches are real and yada, yada, yada. After some other stuff, Elise does tell Mark that she stepped in some bloodstains by Rose's he front door. He also sees something written, like, scratched across her desk. What is, no, do no, what, no, what no, was? no. It was, it was his briefcase. Oh, but there was something scratched on the desk also. Oh, I forgot. I don't remember what it was. It was maybe tenebra room or something like maybe that. well then also too like when he got in the elevator to go up to his sister's apartment he gets in with the nurse and professor arnold and mm-hmm. the professor scratches something like he touches his briefcase with his finger and then when he gets upstairs he realizes that he's scratched mater into his yeah. briefcase but th- there's some blood out by the front door of uh, rose's place and uh, the two begin to investigate so i forget exactly what happens to mark but <laughs> he does get knocked out by knockout gas and elise in my my, probably one of my favorite scenes ever is attacked by a bunch of cats (laughs) as as she's trying to escape a killer this is admittedly a hard team a hard scene to take seriously because you can just (laughs) tell the way the some of the cats are hitting her someone is literally just throwing cats at her and it's hilarious (laughs) well and one cat lands right on her face and it's like in her (laughs) It's in her hair, and she's freaking out. So that's great. 
it, kind of in all this confusion, somebody just, like, it's such a lazy kill. Somebody just sneaks up with a knife and stabs her. <laughs> Kills her. Yeah. There's something, this is very similar in Suspiria. There's a scene where someone's wandering around and she's being chased. She hides and then she eventually falls into this, like a bunch of barbed wire. And oh. it's it, it's it's like, it's yeah. just like this where she's like struggling and you know, it's, okay, she's just going to die from this. But then someone comes up with a razor and just slits her throat anyways. <laughs> you know? So that's it's similar to this. Like the cats could easily have just killed her, I guess. But, you know, speed things up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Elise is dead, but Mark isn't. He's he's found right by the by the by Carol and the nurse, and they just put him to bed in in Rose's apartment. I think the next morning, Mark runs down to the lobby. He sees Carol, the concierge, and he says, "Hey, thanks for all your help. I don't remember anything from last night, but hey, while I'm talking to you, who's that crazy old man that was just in here complaining about all the feral cats? Because he had feral cats break into his store and and, and break a statuette. And Carol goes, "Oh, that's old man Kazanian, and he's the guy who owns the bookstore." So Mark rushes out to talk to him, and he says, Hey, my sister is Rose. Do you know where she is? Do you know anything about the book that you let her buy? What's going on? And Kazanian just says essentially nothing. He's like, "Uh, (laughs) I don't know. The last time I saw your sister was the other day. I used to sell her things. Okay, goodbye. Yeah, he's like, who am I to know anything about my clients? I just sell stuff to them. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't give a fuck. And then at this point for like 15 minutes the movie becomes a showcase for fucked up deaths that night kazanian who has captured all of like the stray cats that have been coming into his shop stuffs them them in a burlap sack (laughs) yeah he's gonna go drown them in central park oh which by the way most of this movie patrick was actually all like all this movie was filmed in rome on different sets and sound stages and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but this stuff was actually shot in central park in 1979 which begs the question, did they just unleash several hundred rats on the city of New York? No, no, they didn't because all the live rat stuff. So so they sent that actor. Well, okay, just to sum it up real quick. He drowns all these cats. <laughs> he puts them in this sack, drowns them, drops them in a pond, drowns them. And then he falls over. And as he's trying to get up in this muddy pond, like a thousand rats just come out of all these culverts and stuff and just start gnawing at him. And... He's screaming for help, like, ah, they're killing me, they're biting me, they're eating me alive. It goes on forever, too. Yeah, there's a there's like a uh, like a hamburger guy or like a hot dog vendor yeah, hot in his, dog in his truck, and he runs across the lake, which, by the way, I read, they put like an acrylic floor so he could run across the lake because it was too deep there, and he runs over and you think he's going to help, but he just fucking pulls out a knife and starts chopping him in the back of the neck like five times and kills him. Mm -hmm. But when they sent the actor in to this pond in Central Park, they attached a bunch of fake rats to him, which you can see them in some of the close-ups. Yeah. But all the real rat stuff was filmed back in Rome. Oh, Like they had a set with a bunch of, like with muddy water and culverts and they just released a board and captured a bunch of rats or whatever. I don't know. So that's a weird fucked up death. But it gets better because Countess Elise, her butler, is like, ah, this fucking dumb bitch, she's not coming back. She's dead. I know it. And Carol, the concierge, she's like, oh, are you sure? But if she doesn't, we can have all of her fine jewelry and we'll we'll live like a count and countess. He goes, I'm going to go upstairs and check for more jewelry or whatever the hell he's doing. And the concierge hears a thump and she goes upstairs <laughs> to find his body propped up in the corner with his eyes popped out of his sockets and like blood all over his face which is great (laughs) 
then the concierge, I, and I love this, she was carrying like like a candelabra and she got so yeah. startled she dropped it and she lit a fire and she was trying to put the fire out. It's like on like, like a big heavy like window curtain and she's trying to put the fire out and then <laughs> the whole curtain that's on fire just falls on her and she starts screaming and she backs out of a window and falls like three stories through a smaller glass window to her death, <laughs> which is awesome. Also... It's easy to miss in the moment, but this is this moment determines the end of the movie. It's kind of yeah, weird. Which, how that uh, yeah, plays so out. yeah, and you're right. It's so bizarre. So she falls through this window, and then the building is just slowly catching fire in yeah. the room she was in on the ground floor, whatever. As that's happening, Mark solves the quote unquote soles of the shoes <laughs> riddle, whatever you want to call it. He sees that a bunch of ants are crawling through the floor, and he just starts like dismantling the floor in Rose's apartment, and he busts through into a crawl space underneath her apartment where a cat jumps down and then eats a live mouse. He crawls out of this crawl space, and we see that via a staircase, he can access a bunch of other apartments. And he continues to head down the staircase where he comes to a landing, and it turns out he's overlooking Professor Arnold's room where we see him get wheeled in by the nurse, and then the nurse leaves. Mark rushes down to talk to Arnold, and the professor actually reveals himself to be Varelli, the guy who wrote the book, the guy who built yeah, the buildings. The alchemist, yeah. who is like 100 years old now, or maybe 700 years old, I don't know. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. He also, he talks, he does the uh, Dr. Fibes method of talking. He does, yeah, that pretty that thing cool. up to his throat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that actually ultimately also leads to his death because um, he's telling Mark that he's also kind of trapped here and he feels bad about building these buildings for these sisters and all the deaths are, are you know, forever kind of going to be on his conscience. And then as Mark leans in, Varelli tries to stab him with like this needle full of some kind of liquid. <laughs> Mark jumps back and Varelli just kind of falls over in his wheelchair and he begins to choke himself with his voice cable. <laughs> Mark sucks all of his poison out or whatever it is and he's talking to Varelli and Varelli's like I'm gonna die I'm close to death but I just want you to know you're still being watched so Varelli dies Mark carries on through kind of the rest of the building and he finds and here's where the music kicks in this yeah. is the song and it, it is, is so good fantastic I agree <laughs> what I wasn't expecting was that this New York sister was Varelli's nurse, which I guess makes sense. She's sitting at a table with her head down, and she has, like, candles. They're lit, but then some of them are actually on fire, and there's other things in the room that are on fire. And she's kind of laughing. She's like, oh, this whole place is going to burn like it did before, whatever that means. Possibly a reference to the house and or the building Suspiria burned down. But then something crazy happens, and she's talking to Mark, and... Then she kind of warps into this mirror. And <laughs> this is my favorite. So some really cool stuff here when she like just disappears and you only see her in the mirror. That stuff is really cool and that's, creepy. That's really cool. And then she busts. And then it gets goofy. Well, yeah. Well, then she goes, I'm known as Mater Tenebrarum, but most people call me and my sister's death. And then she turns into like a grim reaper and busts out of the mirror. <laughs> well, it's... It, yeah, it's, I guess it's a Grim Reaper. It's death personified, but it just looks like a fat skeleton. Looks like a foam skeleton. It's a skeleton costume, but it's worn over someone who's wearing black. So therefore you see all the bones and stuff, but there's more body than just the bones. <laughs> so it just looks way too silly, unfortunately. 
Yeah, well then what's even sillier is that she begins to chase Mark, but the whole building's on fire. And he just kind of stumbles his way out the front door. As he's outside, Mater Tenebrarum is inside still as this fat grim reaper. And as soon as she realizes that Mark has gone out, she just screams and lifts her hands. And then the building collapses on top of her. She's dead, I guess. And that's also the end of the movie. Yeah, super abrupt ending. That's an Argento thing. Yeah, and Patrick, I, I, after watching this, I really, I'd really love to know your thoughts on just how kind of weird this movie was and how how plot light it was. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The Italian movies tend to not make a lot of sense. Let's be honest. There's 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 a lot more focus on feeling and mood and atmosphere in these Italian horror movies than there is on plot. That is particularly a problem in some of the ones that seem to need the plot the most, i.e. the mysteries, the giallos. Mm-hmm. I would say that's less of an issue in something like Suspiria or Inferno, which are these like surrealist nightmare movies. However, it is a problem with Inferno because it is so apparent, I do think. Not that Suspiria is like a, the greatest plot ever in a movie, but it's... It's just a lot easier to follow. Even just the main character, we can follow her throughout the um, Jessica Harper throughout the entire movie. Like we know what she's doing, what she needs to learn. I, I say I think the biggest problem with this movie is that the movie takes about half of its runtime to figure out who the main character is, and it yeah. takes so much time they never actually figure out what he needs to do. He's literally like when he he solves that mystery of the under the foot thing, or and, and then he goes and he he's stumbling into. Um, the professor's room and he still doesn't know what he's looking for yeah what he's yeah. like trying to do and i think that's like really a problem so it's it's frustrating although i will say like that song does so much to make up for for its flaws that song is so great it's like one of the best things ever you know what i think another problem with this is is that i think they were trying to set up for the third movie of this trilogy which makes it all movie. the weirder that he didn't make it for another 27 years, if that is the case, and I don't know if that is. It's just so weird that, we had, that we're following two main characters, and then a third main character, and then two of the three main characters die, then we're introduced to a handful of other characters with 45 minutes left. I wanted the cat-killing uh, antique dealer to be the hero of the movie. I was hoping for that. <laughs> I know. He was the only one who kind of under, who seemed to understand what was, like, sort of going on. And he was like, I don't want a part of it. I just want to sell my antiques and I don't, kill these I don't know if cats. he did. That's the thing. I don't know if anyone ever really knows what's going on. Well, also, what was up with the concierge, right? Right when Mark walks into the place, he looks over and she's... I had to turn the volume up to hear it, but she says, they're like, they're looking at meat. And she says, take it to the usual place. And then Mark goes, hello? And then they cover the meetup. Was that supposed to be part of Rose? Possibly. Yeah, I, I think I think the implication is that like anyone involved with that actual building, with the exception of its tenants, are in on the witchcraft. It's kind of like Suspiria. It's like everyone, yeah, maybe but- not every student, but like anyone who's like running the dance academy is in on it. But then she got killed. She lit herself on fire. Oh, I guess, it, uh, yeah, I guess they didn't kill her. She, she kind of did, did that herself. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't know. <laughs> that's right, yeah. And then that's also a huge problem, too. So I think the biggest problem, ultimately, is that at no point in the movie does the main character really know what he needs to be doing for the plot to move on. It just kind of happens to him, mm-hmm. uh, which which it can be done in an interesting way. And I don't, you know, deny that this movie has interesting visuals and all that. 
But another huge problem this movie has is its conclusion. It basically has the same climax as Suspiria, right? Where they stumble upon this character who becomes a monster. In Suspiria, well, they bring bring to life her friend who has a knife ready to stab her, but then also this mother is like this creepy old lady. But at least in Suspiria, the hero of the movie, the heroine of the movie, did something. Yeah. She stabbed the, the little shadowy figure of the mother. Here, Mark literally doesn't do anything. It's just like, it, he's just lucky. It's just like, oh, thank God they accidentally started the building on fire an hour ago. And <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's just a really not satisfying climax, honestly. And Suspiria is also kind of not a satisfying climax, but it's far more satisfying than this. Yeah, actually, in fact, nobody in this movie actually does anything. I know, that's the problem. People either die before they can relay information, or they just flat out don't do anything at all. Yeah, like, we never even really feel... You You were saying the Kazarian, like, is the one who knows the stuff. I, I don't know if that's true, but we never find out what he knows and doesn't know. There was a, a bit that I glossed over, but he was hanging out in his in his bookstore, and somebody snuck in and stole three copies of The Three Mothers off of his bookshelf. And then some cats got in and wrecked the place. But, like, he doesn't seem to notice that his books are gone. And you would think that if he has, like, three copies of that book... That he kind of knows what's going on. You know what I mean? Or that it's not an antique. Yeah. (laughs) There's that, too. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, the movie didn't make sense. The only thing I really liked about the movie were the visuals. And and, and the deaths, for the most part. Well, yeah, and and I was going to say, I think this is, it's not just the visuals, because I'll say just the direction as a whole. The construction of of certain scenes is just really, really good. Dario Argento knows how to deliver on suspense and shock. He knows how to build up to a gory death. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes it goes on for too long, like with the rats and stuff. But all those scenes, all those scenes are well constructed. It's a really, really well directed film, but the script is just kind of nothing. And I, I think another you know, like the the sunken ballroom is such a visually striking scene. The scene in the auditorium for the um, the musicology class with the uh, mater lock. Lacrimarum staring at him, whispering, putting a hex on him or something. That scene is amazing. That that might be my favorite scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. So much of this movie is well constructed. It's just the script isn't. Yeah, and that's really my and and the script is the weakest part of Suspiria. But I still think it's just bad. It works better in Suspiria, and I think everything works better in Suspiria. But I I do think the story works better in that. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree with you. I really do. So on that bombshell jim which of these two movies do you prefer halloween 5 the revenge of michael myers or inferno starring tom hanks and (laughs) felicity jones you know i'm gonna have to go with inferno just because it's visually striking and it does have a more interesting story even if i don't really like it that much it does have a more interesting story than michael myers walks around and kills people for the fourth time in a row. There's shade, uh, you should say, there's shades of interesting story in Inferno. I do think all the stuff with the mothers is like, has the potential to be interesting. Yeah, all, all that lore I just think stuff that is it's, it's not told well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. told better in Suspiria when we don't get all that stuff about the mothers, really, I guess. I don't know. I well, don't know what that says about it, but. You know, I, I forgot to bring this up. Did you know that Argento said that this was his least favorite movie that he's made? 
I didn't know that, but I wonder when that quote came from. I wonder if he would still say that after he made Dracula 3D. Well, also, apparently he contracted hepatitis while he was filming this. What? And, uh, yeah. Was and it the rats? He had to shoot portions of this movie from his back. They had to, like, angle cameras and get mirrors and stuff so that he could film this movie while laying down. So some people have said maybe he doesn't like it because it just brings back memories it's of him having hepatitis. It's just a miserable time to shoot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's, this is that great of a movie, but I do think it's better than same old, same old Michael Myers in Halloween 5. It's certainly better than Halloween 5. I would go so far as to say this is better than almost any film in the Halloween ex- franchise, except <laughs> for the first and probably the third. It's really on the strengths of the visuals and the direction and not much else. But those visuals go a long way. The song goes a long way. I've mentioned that obviously a number of times, but that's because Cause it's, awesome. it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a better film. And, and I mean, it, it's a decent movie. I don't love it. It's certainly interesting to watch. It's, it's far more satisfying on a visual level, obviously, than yes, any yeah. other, you know, on an emotional level or anything like that. But that's true of all Argento movies. It's just that usually they have a little bit of a stronger plot or something than this. But and then on top of that, Halloween five is pretty damn bad. Like there's a, there's some redeeming qualities, but not many and not as strong as the visuals of Inferno. Yeah. So, Jim, how do you think this holds up as a drive in double feature? It's interesting because I want to say that they don't hold up or they're not that good together because they both are kind of a little boring, slow. Halloween five isn't very good, but I think they are, do work well in their dullness together and the fact that they're both kind of like lesser versions of their originals so uh, i i think it's okay i i don't think it's the best uh matchup we've had no no I, double feature with halloween 5 can be the best no no that's just no. true it's, it's it's definitely not the best matchup but i there's nothing inherently terrible about this pairing you know well yeah and i'll i'll, I'll say it's a decent double feature i'm going to say that inferno as a second feature to almost anything is just like interesting because the visuals just grab you and it, mm-hmm. it's such a delight to look at and in particular as a, as a follow-up to kind of a bland movie inferno wakes you up it keeps your well, might not keep your interest on the story but it certainly keeps your interest on what's actually happening on the screen at least that i think it's pretty good yeah well i guess that uh that concludes our first episode of season four a little dull but I think the rest of the season is probably going to be pretty good. I guess I have a higher opinion of Inferno than you do. Maybe I'm just more of an Argento guy. No, I, I you know I, I do like Inferno a lot. I really do. But it for me, it's like the plot that really kind of kills it for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? Inferno is an incredibly flawed movie, but I still like it because yeah, it's but it's still... but it is so much fun to watch just because it is yeah. so visually interesting. All right. Well, here's what we're doing next time. We are doing. We have a returning director. Not, not, I mean, not from this episode, but a director we have featured. And that's Kinja Fukasaku with the film Battle Royale from 2000, his last film, although he shot part of Battle Royale 2 or whatever the second movie in that series is called. And then we have The Valley of the Guanji, <laughs> which is a movie about dinosaurs in the Old West. I'm tempted to say it's Harryhausen effects. I could be wrong about that, though, and I don't want to... Don't want to slander his name if those effects don't end up being great, but I think it's Harryhausen. Yeah, uh, this is Dinosaurs in the Old West. Like, that's fun. Yeah, you know, that is fun. And it's also fun because, uh, you know, I don't think we've mentioned, you kind of gave me like a little like a little sneak peek into what was coming up for the first couple episodes, but I didn't actually know 
what the movies were going to be. Yes, this is the first time we have mentioned, I have mentioned the titles of these films to you, but I gave you a little hints. I probably told you in this second episode we had a director that we've had before or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you said. <laughs> okay. And also, um, so feel free to check us out on YouTube if you want I mean, just hear our review of Inferno just by itself without all the other nonsense. Uh, check us out on YouTube and check us out on Patreon where we are offering free free trials for a week and you can also if you continue to follow us you will be able to have access to early access to all of our future episodes as well as access to extended versions of the episodes so you can hear some jokes and things that were cut out of the main episode and then of course monthly commentary tracks by Jim and myself where we talk about some of the movies that we love, some of the, some of which that we have featured on the podcast, and many of which, of course, we haven't. So, check us out there, and we will be seeing you folks next week from the Valley of the Guanji, of course. <laughs> hey, Patrick. What's that? Good to be back, pal. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs>